0: Welcome to Top Dogs. I'm Mike Merrill. And I'm Ken Jacobson. So today we're talking with Ann Thompson, who's editor at large at IndieWire and also the founder of Thompson on Hollywood blog. She's also one of the acknowledged experts on the documentary shortlist. The Oscar shortlist for best documentary consists of 15 titles voted on by the documentary branch. And that's what we're going to talk to her about today. Ann Thompson. Welcome to Top Docs.
1: It's my pleasure.
0: Hi, Anne. Great to see you.
1: Great to see you.
0: The Oscar shortlist for Best Documentary Features is voted on by the members of the documentary branch. So the members of the documentary branch could be directors, producers, they could be editors, they could be people in the industry who are not involved in production. So it's a pretty diverse group. They then also get to vote on the top five From This list of 15. So the ultimate list of five nominees will be voted on by the documentary branch. Once the nominations are announced, then all of the active members of the Academy will get a chance to vote on the winner. So let me start out with the
2: favorites. These are documentaries that do not surprise us that that they're on the list. Flea. Danish director Johan Poer-Ramussen's animated telling of his friend Amin's migration from Afghanistan and Amin's subsequent search for the comforts of home. It's also on the shortlist for best international feature. Summer of Soul, part music film, part historical record. Amir Kwestlov-Thompson revisits the 1969 Harlem Cultural Festival. The First Wave, Matthew Heinemann follows the New York City Hospital, its frontline healthcare workers and patients during the early months of COVID-19. In procession, Robert Greene is joined by five men who were abused by priests in their youth as they redeploy the symbols of the Catholic Church to find peace. And last on our list of favorites, The Rescue. The directors of the Oscar-winning free solo, Chai Varicelli and Jimmy Chin, tell the story of the dramatic rescue of a boys' soccer team from a cave system deep inside a Thai mountain.
0: And do you have your own different favorites list?
1: Summer of Soul is going to be hard to beat. And there's all sorts of reasons for that. It has to do with the way the Academy thinks the boxes that it checks off, but Flea, if anything were to, you know, unseat summer of Fall, it would be Flea. And it's interesting because music docs are not necessarily strong in the old documentary branch thinking. They tend to go for social activism and seriousness, but I would say Flea, because the documentary branch is so much more international than it used to be, is a strong contender. It's, it's between those two, but my other front runners, you might be surprised, I know The Rescue is strong, but remember, they don't often select winners again. I hope I'm wrong. If it gets nominated, it could win because it's such a strong thriller of a movie, but they already won for free solo. So that's a negative.
0: Why do you think that is?
1: It's an insular group, less so than it used to be. And they kind of have the attitude that if you've already won, you don't need to win again. And that's why someone like Alex Gibney has such a hard time (laughs) getting back in, you know, as deserving uh, as he often is. It's a quirk of their thinking. It's almost as though they just want to reward other people who need recognition more.
0: And in terms of Summer of Soul, you mentioned that it checked off boxes. Can you just elaborate?
1: Well, what it is this extraordinary music maven, Amir Questlove Thompson, who we all know, but we also haven't seen him as a film director before. And he's able to take this hidden, buried 1969 cultural event that we all should have known about and give it the kind of context that no one else could have given. So it's a combination of those things. Why was it buried? How have they resurrected it? And who was the right person to put it all together? And then, just in marketing and publicity terms, he's the front man. That's a very effective person to have on the campaign trail for your movie. But also, just the signs are clear that it keeps winning all these different groups and getting nominated. It just keeps popping up. Of all the films, it's along with Flea, it's the one that keeps popping up. I have another favorite, which is in the same breath. Nanfu Wang is overdue. She's an extraordinary filmmaker. She gets points for bravery. Along with Matt Heineman, they put themselves in danger to make these films. Heineman almost carries that as a badge of honor, but I think Nanfu Wang puts COVID and China and her own personal story with her child and her husband together, goes up against the government and puts herself and her family in danger.
2: That, in the same breath, Nanfu Wang's penetrating personal essay grapples with the Chinese and U.S. government's early response to the outbreak of COVID-19. And we had that as one of our runners-up, but you feel it's a favorite.
1: I do. I do. The doc branch really recognizes her, I would say, with respect.
0: I think it's a tremendous film, and I'm really actually happy to hear you put it in that favorite category. I haven't heard that much about it in terms of other awards? Have, it's have cropping you... up
1: on the lists, along with Ascension. And and you could look at it's a terrible way of looking at things. But you could take those two films and suggest they're both about China. And Ascension is just Jessica kingdon It's beautiful. I don't know if you guys looked at it. It's just gorgeous. And it shows you the scale of China in a way that very few films have. She just has an eye for finding these amazing locations and showing us how things work there. But if you had to put that one up against In the Same Breath, I would say In the Same Breath has the gravitas to make it into the front runner list. You could argue that In the Same Breath could knock First Wave out.
2: Let me ask about the first wave. Could you handicap that one a little bit?
1: That's a fascinating case. He's been nominated before Matt Heineman. Cartel Land, he had gone over the border in Mexico. He's very respected and admired. It was the first movie to really embed itself inside the hospitals in New York at the height of the pandemic. And it was brutal what he shows. And he had the sense to focus on a few characters who actually make it out and survive. And it just breaks your heart. This movie, but it's so hard for people to sit through that many festivals didn't book it. So it lacked that kind of buzz building that would have occurred if it had gone to the festivals. It ended up debuting at the Hamptons and then went to London. And it is catching up, and Nat Geo's behind it, so they're pushing it really hard. It is getting a lot of attention and it, it is deserving. It's a great movie. I'm just curious to see if two COVID movies will make it into the top five.
0: I was stunned when I was just double-checking where these films had premiered and I saw Hamptons. Toronto
1: did, New York did, because they were afraid it would be too tough for their audiences to see. I called around on this and that's what it was. It's not fair to Matt Heineman, but that's the reality.
0: We also have Procession on here, Robert Greene's film. Robert's been shortlisted before but never nominated. How do you view that one in terms of making it to the next level?
1: I have that one in the second tier. It's getting a lot of attention. It's very well regarded. He's taken these methods of bringing his subjects into reenactments to a new level. And so it's an extraordinarily effective technique here to take these men who were abused as young boys to take them back to their trauma. And it's very upsetting and effective, brilliant movie. I think that's another one that might be too hard for some people to take. I don't know. It's getting... Lots of attention. It's certainly getting onto the lists.
0: That's the one Netflix yes. film on here. Does that play a role?
1: They will do everything they can to promote it. We know that they're the best and uh, they will leave no rock unturned.
0: Let's go back and talk about Flea for a second. It, the one animated feature on here, which makes it stand out from the pack. It's also the one film that is its country's submission for international feature, and it could even make it onto the animation feature list, which hasn't come out yet. What are your thoughts on Flea in terms of not just its chances, but what it has contributed in terms of the form?
1: It's an amazing movie. Ever since I saw it at Sundance, it is a documentary. The narrator is the guy who went through all of this immigration saga from Afghanistan. He's gay, he's discriminated against in so many horrible ways and the animation is amazing and the documentary is amazing. I would say its best shot is probably to make it into the top five of the documentary list. It'll probably get nominated for international as well. I'm not so sure about animation People are trying to talk me into it, like it's a great thing. And I'm just being objective. The animators don't tend to go for the, it's a specific group of people. And even though it's opened up to a lot of other people to participate, if you're in that group, it's still a small group and it's still mostly the animators. It's not like an enormous number. It's gorgeous animation, and it tells a story, but it's not the kind of animation that competes with Raya and the Last Dragon, or Encanto, or Mitchell versus the Machines. It's just not in that universe. I would be delighted if it made it, but I'm not counting on it. It's just fun to have something be eligible for all three, as Waltz with Bashir was, and it didn't get into animation either.
2: I'm going to move on to our Runners Up just briefly before I do that. For our listeners at Top Docs, we have interviews with the directors of FLEA, The First Wave, Procession, and The Rescue. For Runners Up, we've already talked a little bit about In the Same Breath. We have Faya Dai, Jessica Bashir's hypnotic spiritual journey into life, love, work, and oppression in Ethiopia. I was very happy to see this on the list. Attica, Stanley Nelson returns to the upstate prison rebellion of 1971, presenting new archival footage and powerful new interviews, Ascension, Jessica Kingdon's visually immersive exploration of contemporary China's new economy, The Velvet Underground, Todd Haynes dives deeper into his obsession with music with his documentary about the famed group and its place in the New York art scene of the 60s and 70s, and Julia, Betsy West and Julie Cohen profile the legendary chef and television personality, Julia Child.
1: Here's the thing about the documentary race. Honestly, it's such an amazing group of films. I think they should have 10 nominations for documentary. If anything, uh, this particular uh, genre is taking over from narrative, in my estimation, in terms of the independence, certainly. So these are films that that are all worth seeing Day is amazing, you've never seen anything like it. It's extraordinary. Uh, This woman is basically an autodidact who who didn't go to film school, went back to her home country and took her cameras that she had taught herself how to use and captured the most extraordinary black and white footage it's poetic and lyrical. And it doesn't follow any of the usual structural rules that most people learn in film school. And that's one of the reasons why it's so, so great. So I think everybody should see this movie.
2: Yeah. I would note it's otherworldly and yet very much based in that world. Exactly. In, in the global trade of COT and immigration and some of the oppression that, uh, that attends these people.
0: I, I wanted to ask you about innovation and experimentation when it comes to the documentary category. Let's start with the branch. How do you think the branch responds to that, both in getting to the shortlist and then going from the shortlist to the five nominees?
1: It used to be really predictable that you could say, they don't like music docs. They don't like celebrity docs. They take everything very seriously. They don't like reenactments. They never took Errol Morris seriously back in the day, but they've changed. And along with the expanding academy list with its extraordinary push for diversity, that branch, the DOC branch, has expanded the most of any in terms of sheer numbers. And they're very independent and they're very diverse and they're very international. And so I would say their taste has changed and that gives Flea an advantage. You get more chances for the international side to to show itself. That partly explains why My Octopus Teacher did so well. The old branch would never have nominated My Octopus Teacher. As extraordinarily well done as it was, it was a little, and the reason it won was because it was so mainstream. When you get to the part where the whole academy is voting, you have a much more you have a sense of what's popular and what people have seen and you're right Netflix has the advantage I do think innovation counts what is it that makes a movie pop and become the subject of discussion is always if you've never seen anything like it before which is why I give ascension points but if you go all the way to artful on the other hand Hale County got in a few years ago, and I wouldn't have expected that at the time, but you could say that Kirsten Johnson is an example of somebody who's gotten lauded and shortlisted and awarded without getting into the top five because her films are just a little too outside the norm. It's a question of accessibility and popularity combined with extraordinary artistry.
2: It should be noticed uh, that KJ, Kirsten Johnson did win an Emmy this past time, and we have a great conversation with her as well.
1: Yeah, no, she's a, she's fabulous.
0: You do make a good point about generally the distinction between making it to the 15 on the shortlist and then the top five. There are differences, but then there are exceptions. Hale County is a great example of an exception, meaning it, it was innovative and it still made it to the top five. I do want to talk about Attica. Stanley Nelson has also never been nominated, I believe. He was shortlisted for Jonestown. What are your thoughts on Stanley's film Attica and his chances for making the top five?
1: As I was making my list, I actually looked at Attica with a question mark and I put it right there. Because if I were to be honest with you, along with the first wave, the movie that hit me the hardest, that really socked me in the gut, was Attica. I thought I knew the story. You know, there's the the cliche of Al Pacino in Dog Day Afternoon. I lived through it. I was old enough to be around, but I didn't know what really happened there. Stanley Nelson, working with a co-director, by the way, a younger woman, Tracy Curry, wasn't around then and helped him get into the archives and find extraordinary material from inside the prison and from the media that covered it at the time images that are shocking that they could ever have taken place in this country. And at the same time, in our current era of awareness of the racism that has been prevalent in our systems, especially prison systems for all these decades, it's just terrifying to watch this movie. It could get in.
2: We had a great conversation with Stanley and it's a very powerful film.
0: I felt the same way you did, Anne, in that I was like, I think I know this Attica story. And then I watched the film. He made me realize how much I didn't know. He brought in all this great footage horrifying footage, which enabled him as well as through the interviews to explore these deeper themes. And it really hit home.
1: Talking about ticking the boxes, and I hate to be so cynical about it, but I could see some movement toward rewarding him for his whole career. And also, uh, by the way, Tracy Curry did do all those interviews. So it is a dual directing situation.
2: The Velvet Underground. I love Todd Haynes's fictional work. How does the documentary branch feel about an outsider, as it were, somebody who's had great success in other areas jumping into the documentary space?
1: So they, in this case, of the music docs that were in contention, of course, Summer of Soul got in. And I think The Velvet Underground, which did very well at Cannes and does fall into the category that you were talking about earlier, which is innovation. He is such a good filmmaker and had never made a documentary before that he was able to reinvent it and really use some of the avant-garde techniques of that period in Andy Warhol, New York, you know, put in the split screens and show you lots of things going on simultaneously and really play around with it in a, in a really good way. So I'm glad they included it. Do I think they're going to include it in the top five? No. <laughs> he he is an outsider and the real reason is that not everyone relates to the Velvet. Velvet Underground. It isn't like he's got some popular group. I think he's using them to reach for a wider conversation, a, a cultural conversation that's valid, but other people may just not relate to that particular group.
2: It's the second of his Velvet series too. So That's
1: right. That's right. Velvet Goldmine.
2: Wonderful film.
0: What about Julia? So Julia is about Julia Child, of course, and it's directed by betsy west and julie cohen who were nominated for rbg what are your thoughts on julie
1: they're to Julia is a delightful movie, for one thing. I mean, if we're looking for a little bit of charm and sensuality and, and just sheer pleasure, Julia's your movie, does this branch tend to reward that sort of thing? Maybe not, but they are carving out a niche in the realm of feminist documentaries that take iconic women and explore how they got to be that way. The other one they did was My Name is Polly Murray, which is also a, an excellent movie.
2: Betsy West and Julie Cohen Paint a portrait of women's and civil rights activist, lawyer and poet, Polly Murray.
1: Which I would also argue because of the pandemic, the two movies were back-to-back this year instead of being separated by a year. So maybe they're overdue, maybe they're really respected, and maybe they don't get in just because they're relatively straightforward in their approach to making these movies. They're not innovative at all.
0: I would agree with you. I also would agree that it's a delightful film and those tend not to make it to the next level. We interviewed Betsy and Julie about My Name is Polly Murray, not about Julia. I was certainly struck that Julia is the one that got on this list and not My Name is Polly Murray. Polly Murray is not a household name, Julia Child is. What's the importance of having a celebrity at the center of your film?
1: More people will see it. Yeah. You know what? It's all a game of what gets seen, finally. If you talk to any of these campaigners, the sad truth is that the films that have really big money behind them are the ones that get seen. So Polly Murray was backed by Amazon, has been widely campaigned for. There's no dearth of support for that movie. Julia is Sony Pictures Classics, who certainly know how to promote their movies. I just think they went with the sexier, more recent option.
2: I want to jump to our last four. Which we're calling the Dark Horses. And let's start with the two that Ken and I are very excited to see. President, another Danish director, Camilla Nielsen, tracks charismatic young Zimbabwean candidate for president, Nelson Chamisa. And Simple as Water, Megan Mylan follows four Syrian families as they adapt to the realities of the Syrian civil war at home in Europe and in the US. And then Billie Eilish, which is RJ Cutler's portrait of the singer's creative process and the relationships with her family and her fans. And Writing with Fire. Directors Rintu Thomas and Sheshmit Ghosh profile the fearless journalists behind India's only newspaper run by Dalit woman as they fight for truth and justice in the face of a hostile patriarchy.
1: I was going to finish up on the music docs. So the one that didn't get in was the Sparks Brothers from Edgar Wright. But the one that did get in along with the Velvet Underground and Summer of Soul was the Billie Eilish doc. And I have to admit, I was surprised by this. And the reason for that is that as well as it's made by R.J. Cutler, who is a respected member of the doc community, it is still in the category of hagiographic docs that end up promoting their subjects. And I was glad to see the Val didn't get in for that reason, because that could have been directed by him, it was a lot of the archive footage was directed by him, was shot by him. So where's that line? It did interest me that the doc branch saw enough artistry in Billie Eilish to give it a whirl. But at the same time, I highly doubt it'll make it into the top five.
0: The Academy in general over the years has been known to kind of give out these Lifetime Achievement Awards in the context of an Oscar for their latest film, even if it's not necessarily their best. I'm wondering if this is more of a career recognition nod for RJ than for the film itself.
1: It's hard for me to answer that, honestly. They promoted it really well. And I think he did do a really good job. So it may have been one of the ones that everybody saw and liked. I do think he's well liked and he is respected and has been for a long time, but I don't know if they think that way. They do think that way with someone like Stanley Nelson, a veteran who's been around for so long without being properly, you know, he would be, Stanley Nelson would be a candidate for an honorary Oscar in my view, for example someone like that. Cutler's still in the realm of the youthfully middle-aged.
0: It was interesting to me, again, looking at where these films premiered. Here's the one film that premiered at no film festival. It premiered at a live event on Apple Plus TV.
1: Apple's done a great job uh, of promoting this.
2: President, to me, really struck me. It's about Zimbabwe, but it was hard not to be thinking about America while you watch this film. And I wonder if that's some of the attraction of it.
1: It's the kind of movie that they like. It's getting onto all the lists. It's getting a lot of plaudits.
0: One of the things that I think really stands out about President, and it has this in common with the first wave, is that it's a great observational doc. And I think the branch still has a lot of interest in the observational kind of documentary.
2: Simple as Water, this is one I think one of the best documentaries uh, of the year, it's a simple doc. It's it's deceptive. It's about small moments in the lives of these people who have been affected by the Syrian war, especially some refugees. But in its simplicity, you can see the depths of their emotional experience and you can really get a deeper sense of the challenges they find themselves in. Megan Mylan joined me to talk about the beautiful poetic images of this film and we'll have that in the show notes. Let's jump to the surprise misses. Mm-hmm. We've already hit on a couple. Uh, just a note, Edgar Wright was nominated in the sound category for his sound on Last Night in Soho. I saw it at theater, and I don't know if you'll experience the sound quite like you it is in the theater. They actually did this very interesting thing where they only use the front speakers at the beginning of the movie, and then as the lead character kind of falls deeper into this dreamlike state, they envelop you with the sound. So if you can see that in the theater, I would recommend it. Not anything to do with the documentaries. But let me give you one that I'm sorry not to see on here, which is Rebel Hearts. I don't know if Me you saw
1: too. It. I okay. loved Rebel Hearts. So, yeah, I was lobbying for that all along. It's about nuns.
2: So this is Pedro Kos. Uh, he charts the evolution of a progressive order of nuns in the 1960s who have run up against the regressive LA diocese leadership. I would have liked to have seen another uh, movie challenging the Catholic church's hierarchy, but maybe that's a little bit much to ask.
1: They prevailed. They went up against the church and these rebel nuns at Immaculate Heart actually prevailed. And it was horrifying to see how badly educated (laughs) the Catholics in LA were. I mean, these people didn't have credentials and the the nuns were actually fighting for that. Pedro Kost did a great job. He added animation. He really made it into something that could have been deadly dull in other hands. You're right. It, It all has to do with how many people see these films. And this was, this subject was a little arcane for some.
0: This is a Discovery Plus title. They got shut out this year. I don't know if there's any rhyme or reason to that. For Rebel Hearts,
2: not only did we talk to Pedro Coast, but we actually did a anatomy of a scene. So we have two shows with Pedro and we'll put those in the show notes as well.
1: The other one I would say that got omitted, really a, a notable one, was Liz Garbus's Becoming Cousteau. That's one of those movies where I thought it was just extraordinarily well done. Just the skill involved in taking all those archives and taking this guy that we thought we knew as a filmmaker and a celebrity, the Calypso and the Red Hat and all that, and, and showing what he really went through over the course of his career. But it sounds like people weren't that interested, <laughs> even if Nat Geo- was pushing that one really hard.
0: Could that also be a factor that Liz Garbus has been nominated before? She's never won, but-
1: She's overdue in that sense. Becoming Cousteau is one thing. What happened to Miss Simone is she didn't win, so she's due, right? But it may be that she's successful, that she's considered to be very is, successful.
2: Is there a cap too? I mean, we have two, The First Wave and The Rescue are both National Geographic documentaries.
0: They may have
1: had that in mind that they wouldn't want three of those to be in there.
0: The one that I wanted to ask you about is Roadrunner. So Roadrunner, a film about Anthony Bourdain, that film took in about $5.2 million in the box office. So it was far one and away- One of
1: the big hits of the year. It was, the, a yeah, a in big the independent hit. the for Focus. Absolutely,
0: far and away more than any other doc. Why didn't Morgan make it to the shortlist with Roadrunner?
1: He ran into some controversy What's interesting about the controversy uh, about using AI, artificial intelligence to recreate the voice of Anthony Bourdain in a very brief snippet that was written and not recorded. You could tell that Morgan Neville wanted to make it work the best that it possibly could, have the most emotional impact that it possibly could. And he was using the tools of the trade. And a lot of people in the documentary world know how they put Frankenbits together and use sound and use bits of things from here and there, they do it all the time. But this was just a more advanced use of it that people haven't gotten around to accepting yet. It's a little bit like Errol Morris back in the day with the thin blue line where reenactments hadn't been accepted yet. Now they are.
2: We use voice actors, use all sorts of techniques of editing. So this AI thing struck me as like this anti-Alexa kind of uh, contingency.
1: But it's one of those things where the narrative overtook the story. One person said something that I thought might be true, which is that Anthony Bourdain is such a public figure, so beloved. I'm not alone. I mourned him like, like he was someone I loved. Those of us who watched his television shows and read his books and everything really cared about the guy maybe it was because of that, and he had died, and he had died the way he did, tragically from suicide, that recreating his voice was somehow taboo in some way, but like a line that they shouldn't have crossed.
0: It felt like Schadenfreude to me as, as well with Morgan, in that, you know, he's a former winner, and that maybe people were not too upset to see him get caught up in this controversy
1: it falls into the same category of Alex Gibney or Elizabeth Vassar-Healy and and Jimmy Chin or Liz Garbus, even if she hasn't won. If you've won before, you're too successful or something. It's a very weird aspect of this particular branch that they do have that kind of resistance to success.
2: we talked about Sparks Brothers a little bit. Did you have a sense of why that might not have made it?
1: So let's say it's Todd Haynes and Edgar Wright are equivalent filmmakers coming in to do documentaries about music that they love. And one got accepted by the community and the other one wasn't rewarded. And I would have to say that Edgar Wright's movie is really entertaining and really fun. What that movie becomes about is not so much what great performers they are, as what dogged survivors they are, and how they just keep plugging (laughs) decade after decade, uh, trying to seek a piece of relevance again. And he helped to provide that for them, but maybe that wasn't enough for the doc branch.
0: It felt like more of a fanboy film to me. I, I didn't need to go through every single Sparks Brothers album, personally.
1: One more that I thought was overlooked, which got some attention, which is introducing Selma Blair, and that would be in the category of celebrity documentary. They obviously didn't end up rewarding it, but it got a lot of good attention over the year.
0: In terms of the shortlist, it's always interesting to talk not about the best film, but the best campaigns. Which folks do you think, as far as you know, because a lot of this happens behind the scenes, did a really effective job of representing their films and putting their filmmakers out there?
1: Well, Synetic Media is a PR f- firm in, in New York. Synetic Media is a big, bigger company, but there's a Synetic PR branch of it run by Ryan Warner. And they have done, along with Nancy Willen in .LA. I think they are the top. PR people for documentaries. And I'm not saying that because they're so good at what they do alone. It also had to do with picking the films that they're going to represent and selecting them in a very tasteful kind of way, and then applying all of their craft, which they've learned over a long time. Flea is one of of the ones that that they pushed forward from the day back in Cannes and Sundance. It played all of the festivals. I think it's the only one that played every single one of the major festivals. They have not stepped a, a foot wrong, and it's appeared in all the different critics groups and so on. And I would say Nat Geo is hard to resist. They took four movies to Telluride, including Becoming Cousteau and the Rescue and Torn and then Fauci. So they put their big money on the Rescue and eventually First Wave, and that's what got in. But they were pushing five incredibly good movies. So they had a, a strong slate.
0: Are there any other trends that you've identified among the 15 or among the favorites?
1: If you put the two Chinese films, Ascension and In the Same Breath and Flea into a, a more global international category, you could put The Rescue in a more global category. Also, it, it isn't really an American story. And it took a coalition of people from different countries to get that made, including the subjects from Britain and the subjects from Thailand. Julia, American, but she had a global following and spent some time in Paris, a romantic time in Paris. I, I do think that continues to be a trend.
0: International definitely does seem to be a continuing trend, I, I think. writing with fire and president, both.
1: Simple as water,
0: What about festival launch pads? Sundance, I think, has taken the lead in the last few years. Totally. This year, we have six that premiered at Sundance. I think we had three from Telluride, two from Tribeca, one from TIFF, I think. Did the pandemic year, which is stretching into years, but did the pandemic year of 2020 affect that trend or is Sundance still the best predictor
1: Sundance is just absolutely the place you want to be to to debut your movie. They did such a good job with their digital platform last year that I don't think it hurt the movies not to be live in Utah. I think it's the most prestigious launch pad you can have with the right mix of enthusiastic people seeing the films and writing about them and passing on the word. Tribeca and the other festivals, Tom Powers does a great job with Toronto and he had a strong selection too but they cut him down a bit because they had a smaller festival and then of course uh, he does his usual thing at Doc NYC and comes up with his shortlist.
0: How do you think the branch is doing in terms of looking through the lens of the shortlist representation?
1: They're very conscious of that they're never not going to be aware of that. We've got a number of Asian filmmakers and subjects. We have a number of subjects that deal with race issues, most especially Attica, but also Summer of Soul. It's a very eclectic group of films. I think they did really well, don't you?
0: I think they did. I think there was maybe a dearth of LGBTQ stories and filmmakers that made it this year. What Um, candidate
1: would you have pushed in that category?
0: In terms of subjects, Polly Murray.
1: Yeah, um, I agree. That's a good one.
0: No Straight Lines is a really good, well-made film by Vivian Kleiman, but she doesn't have a distributor, and that's a handicap, I think. Very
1: much so. Yeah.
0: No Ordinary Man, maybe.
1: I think it's evident now that in the documentary world, more than ever, having a robust campaign behind you is a necessity. And if you don't, you're kind of left outside of the group shouldn't be that way, but it is.
0: Now is the moment. We're gonna ask for the five films that you think are gonna make it to the next level and be the nominees. And then I wanna hear your winner, your projected winner.
1: All right, I am confidently gonna say that Flea, Summer of Soul, In the Same Breath, The Rescue, and Attica are gonna make the top five. My logic for that is that In the Same Breath is gonna knock out the first wave and in the same breath, it's also going to knock out Ascension. Am I overthinking this? Yes. I just have a hunch that Attica is going to make it. And then my prediction for the winner is Summer of Soul.
2: Great yeah. film, highly enjoyable, and, and meaningful. Uh, very much about the music that summer in Harlem, but also about the uh, growing awareness of Black pride.
1: But if it weren't that, it would be Flea. <laughs>
0: Do you have a favorite film of the year? A film that you would love to see take home the Oscar?
1: I am going to argue for in the same breath on that one. I love Flea. I, I love, love, love Flea and *Summer of Soul* and the rest. I love. They're such good films. They're extraordinary films, but. In the same breath, just does this extraordinary thing of combining the visual beauty of ascension, uh, the capturing of the culture of China, the extraordinary courage of the filmmaker who brings her personal narration to it, and the COVID drama in China. And she unearths a lot of stuff that no one else got in terms of revealing new reporting. I am awed by this film.
0: I think there is something called a Nanfu Wang film. She has a distinctive filmmaking aesthetic and approach to the medium. And you could watch five minutes of any one of her films and go, that film's by Nanfu. No other person could have made that film. Anne, thanks so much for going through this year's Oscar shortlist. We love your insights and look forward to having you again. Thanks so much, Anne.
1: It was my pleasure. Really fun.